Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. I'm Nas Srinivas, Group Vice President of Client Communications here at the firm, and I'm joined today by Senior Research Analyst Brad Rotolo. Hi, Nash. Happy to be here. So, Brad, your area of coverage at the firm is energy, and it's been a little while since we've done an energy update for our listeners. So, what are some of the major stories you're following right now in your area of coverage? Well, as it relates to covering global energy stocks, the most important driver is really just the direction of oil. And when we think about what moves the price of oil, it's really the inputs to supply growth versus the inputs to demand growth. And we're in an environment where demand growth has been fairly steady. It's a reasonably strong global economy, and with that, you should expect oil demand to continue to to move ahead. What's been a little interesting of late is the supply picture. So some of the stories that have uh, been most pertinent of late are sort of the big producers, your, your Saudi Arabia's, your Russia's, having agreed months ago to bring some supply back into the market. But at the same time, the second tier of producers, places like Iran and Venezuela, have seen pretty marked supply uh, production curtailment, be it from humanitarian crises or uh, concerns about Iran's ability to export, let's, let's say. Uh, for a country like the U.S., which obviously isn't controlled by a state oil company, uh, the thing of note lately, I'd say, has been, A, not only the remarkable increase of production over the last few years, but the fact that for the last couple of months, supply growth has actually sort of leveled off just a little bit. So uh, packaging it all together, you've got a situation where supply growth is beginning to be talked about as being a little tighter. So let's start with global oil supply and demand. What have prices looked like recently? Where are they relative to, say, this time a year ago where we, when we last did a podcast on energy? Well, the, the global price is, is still Brent crude. Um, that's, that's the most important price that energy markets care about. And there, we're just shy of $80 a barrel, 78 and change as of today. Um, that's markedly higher than it, than it was a year ago. Um, and some of the things putting upward pressure on the price of oil have been these concerns of geopolitics creeping into the market uh, and things like the, the Iran production slowing. Um, so a good bit higher. So let's actually talk a little bit about the producers. Um, let's start with the United States being one of the largest producers and the most, one of the more dynamic producers today. What does that market look like? How has it changed in the last year? What stories are you following specifically with the United States? Well, what's changed is certainly the volume of production continues to be extraordinary. Um, you know, if you had told somebody 10 years ago that the U.S. would be producing oil on par with the Saudis and the Russians, that, that would have been quite the surprise. Uh, but you know, thanks to technologies like horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing, U.S. has gone from about 4.5 million barrels a day pre this sort of revolution to just under 11 million barrels per day right now, which is a pretty remarkable uh, feat. Now, more interestingly, year to date, what you've seen is the most prolific shale region, which is the Permian Basin. There have been concerns that 
well, they actually are pumping too much and sort of midstream capacity to be able to move that crude oil from West Texas and Eastern New Mexico. Simply don't have the infrastructure there yet. So there's been a lot of bottlenecks to actually move that crude into a place where refiners can use it. So the price that a lot of oil companies based in the U.S. are getting for their crude is severely discounted versus the global market. So in thinking about how that impacts energy companies, you've seen a lot more volatility on the ones that are exclusively focused on, let's say, the Permian Basin versus the more global integrated players. So let's actually talk about that a little bit more. What's been the big difference between West Texas Intermediate and Brent Crude? And have we seen any narrowing in terms of the prices of those two benchmarks, or are they still pretty wide apart because of the infrastructure reasons you mentioned earlier? Well, the differential historically has been quite narrow, just a couple of dollars per barrel at at most. A few months ago, it was north of $10 a barrel, $12 a barrel. Um, So that was a pretty remarkable blowout of that differential, really just tied to the fact that your Permian producers were having to sell for for significantly lower rates because there just wasn't the capacity to move it. It's narrowed a bit, the differential, um, but I would still say that that's that's a significant differentiating factor between the the Permian producers versus the global names. So let's talk rig, rig counts a little bit. In the past, we've talked about how rig counts in the United States often follow higher oil prices. And now that we've seen actually higher oil prices, are we seeing those producers turn rigs online again and starting to pump at more economically feasible levels? Or has that remained relatively stable? You know, it hasn't inflected as highly as one might have expected. Um, you know, historically, we've seen you know, turns in the price of oil correspond a few months later to the rig count moving higher. Uh, that hasn't really happened of late. Um, it could be that producers, particularly in the Permian Basin, which is, as I said, the most prolific area for, for new drilling, it could be that they're simply holding off on putting new rigs into the field until there's a little more clarity on when that takeaway capacity will, will be alleviated. Um, so you haven't really seen the rig count adjust. It, it's somewhat flattened over, over the, the past few months. So let's look at OPEC next. What has OPEC been doing? Have they been changing anything in terms of their production volumes into the global oil market? Well, recall in November of 2016, OPEC got together and said, uh, we actually want to put a little bit of a floor on the price of oil and we want to cut production. So OPEC did that. Uh, Most market participants, myself included, really didn't think it was going to be all that effective because OPEC historically hasn't been able to sort of get their act together. You've got some participants uh, agreeing to, to certain deals and then others really cheating, to, to put it to put it bluntly. But really, OPEC surprised everyone by not only hitting their, their production cut goals, but surpassing them. So they overcut, so to speak. Uh, now, in June of this year, the Saudis, uh, who really act as sort of the de facto leaders of OPEC, they agreed to simply bring production back in line with 100% compliance with the November 2016 deal. Effectively, they overcut in 16, and now they're saying, well, we're going to bring some production back back online, so no longer overcutting. 
incidentally, they're meeting this weekend, uh, not so much as a decision on whether to increase capacity, but to divvy up which countries get to increase that capacity because it's somewhat unclear um, exactly to what degree that that'll be split among the countries. What are some of the other countries you're following in terms of big producers? Iran stands out as probably the most interesting and I would say the most pivotal to oil markets right now. So Iran, as the number three producer in OPEC, Uh, has been somewhat of a a surprise and a little bit of a swing factor over the last year plus. So recall the the sanctions that were put in place on Iran's nuclear activities in the 2011-2012 timeframe. Iranian production as a result fell by about a million barrels per day. Um, This was for a variety of reasons, but effectively Western uh, counterparties ceased buying Iranian crude oil. Uh, the reserves in the fields were underinvested in, so production just naturally declined and, and wasn't able to grow. Uh, now, with the JCPOA that was signed uh, a few years ago, this is the Iranian nuclear deal. Correct, correct. Uh, that relieved some of those sanctions. Of course, the U.S. still maintains unilateral sanctions on Iran for other activities, but the the one re- relieving sanctions from a, a lot of Western allies. Uh, With that, the question mark was, well, how quickly can Iran get that million barrels per day back up? Uh, And Iran surprised everyone by doing it pretty quickly. So Iran quickly moved back to producing about 3.8 or so million barrels per day. Uh, But under President Trump, who has removed the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal, the question immediately became, well, how much of that million barrels that disappeared under prior sanctions, how much of that million barrels should we expect to decrease again? Uh, And early indications are actually that it's starting to decline fairly precipitously. You've already got reports from uh, Reuters and a number of other sources saying that Reliance, which Uh, runs the biggest refinery in the world. It's a large Indian company. Bought no crude oil from Iran uh, in in the month of August. Uh, There's been a little bit of mixed messages on uh, how strongly the U.S. State Department is going to push its partners to no longer import Iranian crude. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, that's that's the big question uh, outstanding. That's a little surprising because India is a net importer of oil, and I believe it's the second large importer of Iranian crude oil, right? Yeah, that would, that would be right. China would be the, the number one. So we've talked a little bit about the current state of the oil market, and as we know, the energy sector tends to rise and fall on the price of oil, and oil is doing well and higher rising. The energy sector tends to do well and, and, and vice versa. Given the state that oil is in right now, what participants in the energy sector are likely going to do well from here? Which ones are likely going to do worse? The parts of the energy market that likely, in our view, hold up best are the really large energy companies, uh, integrated energy companies that have some upstream exposure, but also the the downstream exposure. Uh, Companies like that are going to be just far less susceptible to the the variations in in the volatility of of the oil price. Absent that, uh, uh, we will still be favoring size, I would say, within energy uh, in terms of larger exploration and production companies or service firms that have differentiated service offerings that they can offer their customers, but really avoiding uh, particularly small companies. 
Well, Brad, thanks again for coming in today. I think that was a nice wrap on the energy sector for our listeners. And thanks to all of you for tuning in and listening. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2018.